Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the ELT Upgraders podcast with myself, JC, and we have Mr. Jakey Wooden in the studio again. Uh, what's going on today, Jakey? Today, John, we're going to be looking at a little bit of research we've been conducting for teachers in Asia on motivation of students. So we've got some pretty cool stuff to look at here. I've put together a survey monkey for some teachers in basically China so far, Japan, Cambodia, a few in Thailand, and we've come up with some interesting results. Well, sounds great, Jakey. At the same time, it sounds a little bit nerdy as well. Tell, tell us a little bit more about um, the areas that you were, you were surveying. So what we looked at was the teacher's experience, the teacher qualification, and where they were teaching, and what age groups they were teaching. We looked at that as the demographics. Then we looked at what did they think motivated or demotivated their students. So the things we gave them to choose from were things like for motivating or demotivating factors were things like games, uh, reward systems, competition, uh, stickers, songs, visual content, tests, homework, error correction. We gave them about 15 choices and then they had to rate their top three most motivating things and top three most demotivating things. And the results were quite fascinating, actually. What do you think, John, was the most... What do you think people thought was the most motivating thing? Very good question. I would predict something like the content. The content of the lesson, possibly uh, the teacher himself or herself, I think, would be a key motivating factor. We'll find out if I'm right a little bit later on. So, uh, Jakey, uh, let us know what are some of the factors that influence people's opinion when they were talking about motivation? Yeah, the three biggest things were teacher experience, how long they'd been teaching, their cultural background seems to have a little in bit of influence and the qualifications, the level of their qualification really affects what their opinion is on what motivates or demotivates a student. So, so what about experience? Tell us, tell us more. Well, for experience, the newer teachers, uh, which was about 20% of the people surveyed, people less than one year or 18 months, their top motivators were, of course, games and competition they and, and and we see this as teachers all the time as a as a observer i see it all the time that new teachers come in it's safe it's easy i can go in and i can play games i can have some competition and then no worries the kids are having fun at least and they leave and they're happy and they're high-fiving each other this completely changes though with the teachers with 48 months experience which was about 50%, more than 50% of the people we've interviewed had more than four years' experience, whereas their top was personalization and content of class. And they actually had competition quite far down, about number five or six, and reward systems quite far down as well. So, John, I just wanted to ask you a little bit, what, what do you think of that, like where new teachers have that really strong focus on games? Yeah, I'm thinking back to uh, when I first started teaching uh, in, in Vietnam, Ho Chi, Ho Chi Minh City. Started out going into class and I would say games were, were up there as things that you'd be integrating into the classroom. Just for that reason that you wanted to please, uh, please the kids, you wanted to win them, win them over. Yeah, as you say, the more experience you get, 
maybe you sort of adapt. I still kept games as, you know, a key element uh, of, of the classroom. I think they're an important place uh, in the class, maybe at the start or the end or integrating them throughout. But I think, uh, yeah, as you get more experience, maybe other sort of key uh, key factors sort of come come into your into your teaching. What about you? When you started out teaching, were you heavy on the games or uh, how did you approach your teaching? Yeah, that's what happens. I mean, you arrive in a new school and you don't get that much training um, in, in some places and one of the senior teachers walks up to you and says, here's a pack of games. Or they give you a book of games and say, get in there and start teaching. And, and the easiest thing to do is just to go in and start playing games. And I, I don't think that that's a problem. It, it's fun for the students and it is motivating. I think what then becomes an issue is that the games then become related to competition. And what I noticed as when I started moving into more management positions was watching teachers who spent their whole class just having competition. This group versus this group. And what happened is in a lot of the classes is the person who gets the right answer gets the, the highest amount of points. So what is that doing? That just reinforces that the higher level students get the most points and feel great and the lower level students get the lowest points and feel terrible. So it's just constantly reinforcing that students who don't do as well keep on getting demotivated by not doing as well. So as, I think competition is fine as long as the reason you win the game is not just for answering the right question, it's for maybe having a go or trying or just doing something in the game that you get your points not from just speaking the English. Yeah, games for me, um, again, just depends on, on the game. And if you can you know, involve a lot of uh, communication, social interaction actually into the game itself, I think you, have a, you can have a lot of sort of uh, good, good benefits there. Um, yeah, in terms of competition, splitting the class, boys, girls, etc., etc., yeah, so it's a it's a difficult one. Yeah, I think you could award or uh, award points and things for other things apart from winning. Maybe how well they worked in a group or something like that. But I think a lot comes down to the actual group or the class itself. I've had certain classes at the same at the same level. One was actually reacted very well to, how do we say, just using the course book and the teacher adapting um, some nice little activities, not necessarily games, but they were sort of very motivated by the course book and how the teacher adapted the activities in a, in a fun way. Another group at the same level, they just wouldn't produce language. And the only way that you could get them to produce was through uh, through games. And, you know, as long as they, they were producing something in English, the teacher was thinking, well... At least they're producing something and they're enjoying English. That's a that's a that's a start. So it depends a lot, a little bit on the dynamic of the class as well. How would you feel about that one? Yeah, I totally agree. And I I saw some great research. And and here's a top tip for you: that it's the incidental language that you can have when they're playing games as well. I think a lot of teachers just have the game and say, okay, the only thing you have to do is say the outcome of the, whatever language is the, is the language point. There's all this other language that can be coming out like, hey, it's your turn. No, it's not. It's my turn. Hey, let me go first. No, you go first. Oh, teacher, teacher, let me try. And all that other incidental language is actually opportunity for learning. I saw some great research which showed that once you started teaching the students the other incidental language, the amount of language that output in that class in English increased by like 40 to 50% because they were allowed to use this other language around the games. So don't think of games as just 
a, a way to get out the objective of the class. It also lets all this other natural language come out as well. Yeah, very good point. I think on that sort of incidental sort of language, um, I think, yeah, many people call it sort of process language. The, the language that you can use uh, when doing a task or throughout a game. Um, so a good, another little tip there is to create little sort of useful, useful phrases, process language posters put up in the classroom. So that at least when they're, they're playing a game, like Jake said, you've got these phrases like it's your turn, it's my turn. Uh, all, all these kind of little phrases you can have up there and you can refer back or get the students to refer back to the phrases uh, throughout the game. That was about the, the newer teachers sort of really needing to focus on games because it's easy, it's e- something to do, it's easy to play and you can get in there. Let's have a little chat though about what the more experienced teachers thought was the most motivating thing. So for teachers who taught for four years or more, the thing that they thought was most motivating was relating content to the students' lives or otherwise known as personalization. We hear this term a lot and it's and it's thrown around all the time. So John, can you just kind of define what this idea of personalization is? I certainly can. Um, and I'm going to read you a, a sentence from uh, an A to Z of, of ELT. And personalization is when you personalize language, you use it to talk about your knowledge, experience, and feelings. And Jackie, I know you want to add something to that. What's your, what's your, what's your word of the day? Yeah, my favorite word in teaching is, is the word meaning and meaningful interaction. I remember watching, I used to watch this class down in Shenzhen in China. And if anyone doesn't know, Shenzhen in China is very hot. It's probably 30 degrees every day and the book was called Pingu and it was I don't know if anyone remembers it it was for five to seven year olds or something and the whole thing was about a penguin who lived in Antarctica and used to ride around on a sled and it just sort of it was just so funny because the kids were so uninterested because they were from Shenzhen in this tropical country and then they had to talk about being in the snow with this sled and it just didn't make any sense to them so that's that I so that was the class was almost impossible to personalize. So the idea is adding meaning to the class. And I think that it's interesting with textbooks because a lot of teachers get, you get given a textbook and then you sort of say, now I have to teach this textbook. And I don't think anyone's saying that. I think what they're saying is here's a beautiful resource. How can you take this resource and then relate that to the students' lives? In terms of personalization, I've got, I've got a question uh, back to back to you. Do you think that personalization in modern day course books is integrated well enough or do you think it's like a little bit of an afterthought, an add-on for a lot of activities in in a course book? I I think with teen books and adult books, it's become sort of part and parcel of the book. I mean, the first part of every unit is always how do we personalize the topic? Here's some pictures, here's a video, here's some, what do you, and it's always got the what do you think or how do you feel about this? And then you're meant to relate it to yourself. I think with the younger, younger learners though, which is where the issue starts to come in is if, well, I'm five, six and seven and I can't have my own opinions on things. So we're just going to do fruit today. Whereas it's, it could just be so easy to add in the, what's your favorite fruit or what fruit do you like or so I think that it's has become very well integrated into teenage books, adult books, uh, especially business books but I think that what we want to see more of it is in the young learner books. I was yeah, reading recently also about about teens actually and on 
yeah, sort of personalization. And when a lot of teachers felt that when teens were maybe talking about their own lives, they weren't so comfortable as a, and maybe if they're coming from different sort of social uh, yeah, social parts of society, right? So they're talking about holidays and the teacher wants to personalize it about uh, their holidays and one student's been away to Hawaii or something and one has just gone down to the local park <laughs> next next to his house. That can create um, a little bit of, um, yeah, I think resistance there as well. So we have to think about those things. That one, we call that one the twilight zone. I think the area or sort of taboo areas, well, not taboo, but areas maybe uh, where students don't feel comfortable or they find it a little bit intrusive. So maybe one way around that one would be maybe to get them maybe to use their imagination a bit more creativity. They're not always talking about their personal lives, but thinking about maybe creations, fantasy things that are going on in their heads, and they can talk about that instead. They often feel a little bit sort of safer, um, safer that way. All right, so that's a bit more on teens. Anything to add on teens, or do you think it differs, like personalization and how we approach it, uh, young learners, teens, adults, or it's the same concept? How do we feel about that? I just think that it's, it just comes back to that same word again, is meaning, and letting them... It doesn't have to be, say, hey, you tell me about your holiday, but it's sort of how can you, how do you want to let this class, you can take control of this class in some way. So other ideas of personalization is, you know, like with kids especially, the way we integrate projects, for example, now, the project allows them to personalize it. We're not saying, okay, today we're going to make a clock. It's sort of the clock can be any color they, they want it to be. The clock can be the numbers can be written however they want it to be. It can be done as a digital clock or not a digital clock, but the point is that they're allowed to do something on their own. So personalization doesn't just have to be, hey, you, tell me about your life. It can also be be creating opportunities in the classroom for them to personalize. So if it's – and I think project work is is a great one or where teens get to collaborate on like a debate or a new idea. So they can offer their opinions, but they don't necessarily have to be talking about their own personal selves, but they're still putting themselves into the class. So personalization really for me is just a simple way of saying add more meaning and make it learner-centered. I think there were two really good ideas there, uh, your, uh, the projects and you mentioned sort of debates as well. But again, I think the teacher is important for them to choose the right topic, right, for, for the project or for the debate, or better get the students to have their own choice um, over, over the topic uh, of the debate. I think um, there's this guy, was it v- Vygotsky? I know I can never pronounce his name. Vygotsky, v- Vygotsky. He talked about something called... Um, a lateral, a lateral bridge, where at the end, one end of the bridge, you've got emotional response, and at the at the start of the bridge, you've got like the stimulus. So if you can get the stimulus right, which might be like the content of the debate, the content of the project, they're more likely to want to be motivated to make that emotional response. And if they want to make the emotional response, they're going to want also to learn the language. Uh, which tran- transcends them from the stimulus to the emotional response. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, so, that, yeah, yeah. so again, so if they uh, they want to make that res- emotional response because the stimulus is good, yeah. and they're going to really want or motivated to learn the language they need to make that emotional yeah. emotional response, um, which I thought was quite quite interesting. 
Hey, sorry, just while you were talking about that, it reminded me of um, we used to watch a lot of observe a lot of uh, dip Tesla classes, and now with social media, what it allows you to do is have a group of learners send out to them the day before or a week before and say, "Look, this is the form or the function I need to teach you. This is where the curriculum is going." Tell us what topics you want to talk about because then you can make it as learner-centered and personalized as possible. The issue being, though, is then you have a class of 20 people and, you know, if, if half of them want to talk about football and the other half want to talk about something different, then how do you link that emotional stimulus and the, what did you call it? There was a really nice word. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but then, but then that brings in the other idea is, this idea of differentiation in personalization. So you don't – I think some people think, oh, the class means, well, I have to choose a topic that the whole class are into. But you don't have to. It can, you can differentiate topics in the class and still stimulate to get to that final emotional response. I, the, the best class I ever saw, there's a guy who did this. He, he, had a, he had a form and a function he had to teach, but he provided for 20 different people – five different texts which related to their topics that they wanted to talk about which then created this emotional response so he had a text on football for one and cooking for another one and traveling for another group but it all led to the same final outcome and i don't know how he did it so well it must have taken him forever to do and he couldn't do it forever but it was just such a nice way to show how you can personalize a whole class of learners and differentiate as well Yes, good point on that differentiation and uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys listening, when you're doing a task like talking about, say, your best friend and you're trying to sort of personalize activity, they're going to try and produce a short paragraph or a few sentences about their, their best friend. The usual response is something like, my best friend is Jake. He lives in China. He has brown, slightly ginger hair. He has... What color eyes you got, mate? Uh, oh, they're beautiful green. He has beautiful green eyes. He is tall. He likes football. And often the teacher, when the teacher's marking that, they're going to get 25 same same responses. So actually one little tip there, and we mentioned it a little bit uh, earlier, was trying to get them a little bit more imaginative and sort of creative with their with their responses. Uh, and one way one way you can do that is to bring in... Yeah, a little bit more on maybe possibly the the senses as well. So, for example, you might think about what is your best friend? What does he smell of? What does he smell of? Is there a smell that sort of uh, reminds you of him? What does his voice or her voice sound like? What makes him her laugh? What do you both have in common? How does he walk? How does she run? Uh, how does he dance? Okay, little things like that to help sort of give them a little bit more creativity and differentiation in their in their answers um, can be very sort of motivating uh, for them as well. Um, I had another question for you, Jakey. Yeah, do you think also on personalization? Yeah, personal associations. So with language items, does this make learning more? memorable as well does it make learning more effective does it make it more memorable when they're personalizing it yeah that's a good way i was doing some training the other day in beijing and it was interesting this is actually a negative answer it's the opposite way was it was the first chapter of 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 a textbook that this school was using and they 
and the, and it was for eight to nine year olds and it was the topics was about electrical goods and it was vacuum cleaners uh electric jugs <laughs> sorry what was the other one vacuum cleaners electric jugs uh, blenders and uh, you know and and something else that was for cleaning or something and it was kind of that idea that there was no association. With, is that what you meant when you asked the question? So it was sort of like the opposite. And then they were also saying, well, how do I motivate my students to want to learn about a blender? They're eight. They don't, they don't care. But then it's sort of like, well, you could bring a blender in and then you could make a drink, but then that's not going to happen as well. So, yeah, my answer to that is I often used to ask my students eight, nine it's great when you have a local teacher, if I'm a native speaker, but if you have a local teacher, have this beautiful added advantage is that they can ask their kids to come in and bring the words that they want to learn in. They can say, next class, you all bring three words you want to learn, three words that relate to your kitchen. Pick three things in your bedroom or pick three things in your school you want to learn about. So there's that real association with the language. Yeah, what's your Blenders is the is my favourite topic. I can't believe you said that. Uh, that also reminds me, my first teaching uh, spell was in uh, in Nepal, in the right down the south uh, of Nepal, a little village there. And they threw me into the secondary school class there, the local sort of textbook. And I had to teach these kids in the middle of nowhere in this village um, who had no English about dinosaurs so i had to drill them or like the names like diplo diplodocus <laughs> tritanosaurus rex etc etc like no no connection to their to their lives um so <laughs> yeah in the end i had to try and yeah, to try and personalize it i mean i think the only way was to sort of ask them you know if you were one of these if you could choose one of these dinosaurs which one would you be and why just just something like that to help them sort of connect or make some kind of personal association with it to help them to remember it because in the exam they had to you know what dinosaur is this and they had to like spell it correctly all 25 letters it's just uh, you know the book was so set to the exam uh, it, it was scary um but that probably another whole podcast uh, in it in itself oh we could go on forever on this personalization one thing i'll finish up with um so that was all sort of the motivating things that people talked about with personalization um one of the top things that the guys who with more experience with four years or more wanted to talk about was reward systems Yeah, so a lot of the experienced teachers, one of their big demotivators was reward systems. And, you know, I've worked in a lot of different schools and, and, and been to a lot of schools, and a lot of places have these sticker reward systems. And what um, – actually, my, my father works in education, and he used to in, – in Australia, and he used to call it the sticky sticker situation where it's – you just can't win. It's sort of, hey, well done today. You get a sticker because you did you did something. Well, tomorrow I want two stickers because – Yesterday, I already got one sticker for doing that until it becomes this sort of idea of where I'm getting a sticker for everything and I'm getting a sticker because I sat down or I'm getting a sticker because I put my hand up and you end up eventually where I only do things because I'm getting a reward, which then takes away the meaning of why I'm learning the language. So reward systems are interesting. Um, one thing I suggest we won't get into now, but if you, if you guys are interested, look up what's called PBS, Positive Behavior Support. 
which is this idea of you reward people for the behavior by positive praise, etc., not through stickers, not through you, you get some money that you can use to buy a prize at the end of the, the year because you spoke the most language. People shouldn't be learning a language because they're going to get enough stickers. They sh- I mean, if it works, yeah, maybe, but really they should learn it because they want to learn it, yeah? Um, with PBS, the idea is that you – positive behavior support is you get the students to you can take sort of photos of them doing the good behavior doing things that are motivating and then you use those later in class and say here here's a picture of johnny doing something motivating don't you want to be more like johnny so whether you use sort of peer support to make them motivated rather than here's a sticker to make you motivated do you have any thoughts on reward systems john i'm a personally uh... I'm a big fan of stickers, <laughs> massive motivator when I was learning a language. Yeah. But no, I see, I see your point. Yeah, PBS, I think uh, I spent a lot of time working in uh, Malaysia, working with teachers there, and they had massive issues with sort of classroom management and getting their kids sort of motivated, especially out in sort of the rural, the rural areas where, you know, English, they're not exposed to English uh, that much. So we were trying to work heavily with them on, yeah, this positive reinforcement so we're um to try and a to control the behavior but also sort of motivate them to 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 produce language as well so uh, they were sort of using things like you know performance performance charts which again it was going down a little bit down on the sort of the competition so they like one example was like they on a big sort of colored a4 sort of a3 sheet they drew like a, a racetrack and they divided the class into groups each group was a, a racing car of their choice if that group perform perform well or collaborated well on certain group activities, their car would like move up the racetrack. But if they spoke too much of their local language or they misbehaved or they weren't working effectively effectively in a group, their car would move back down down the track. You know, and the car that moved or was nearest the finish line at the end of the class, there was some sort of positive uh, positive reward uh, reward for them. Also, go yeah, go back just to to the game thing as well, and sort of positive reinforcement. I don't want to go back all the way back to games, but but using games as a way a motivator. For example, okay, if you do this activity well, you're good in the class. We'll do this game at the end. Yeah, yeah, that's a different way of looking at it. Sorry, and then just because we're jumping between two topics, which is fun on the reward systems with stickers. The other sort of issue with it is is when you get that kid that just says, well. I don't care. So you sort of say, well done, kids. Whoever finishes this project gets a sticker and they can go home. And then little Jimmy, it's always little Jimmy, just says, well, I don't want a sticker. And then, then that's the end of it. Then there's no, then that's, then he doesn't have to do anything. It reminds me of a time yeah, I was teaching uh, in Vietnam and I had a little bit of trouble controlling, controlling the class. Um, I wanted to give some positive reinforcement. So my goal this lesson, I found a, I found this really crazy wig in a local sort of uh, a local shop, uh, a dress-up shop. I'm not sure what I was doing in that dress-up shop, shop, Jake. But anyway, I brought that into class as a way of like punishing kids who misbehave. They misbehave, they have to wear this silly wig. But it completely flipped on itself. They all wanted to wear, they all wanted to wear the wig. So they all started misbehaving. So um, yeah. Can I just say, sorry, and just for the one really demotivating thing, just for any newer teachers out there, one of the first things I ever learned 
someone told me this um great great trainer he was and he said to me never never remove your child from the class or tell them to go move into the corner of the class as sort of like a that's a demotivating way to motivate them to not do something right and i said i couldn't work out why he said okay we'll try it one day so i said to one of my kids look johnny you've been you've been bad you're going to go sit in the corner go sit in the corner and what did johnny turn around and say to me an eight-year-old boy turns around and said no well, that was it. Johnny owned the class. 21 kids stared at me while Johnny controlled me, a 30-something-year-old man, while an 8-year-old boy had complete control of the class. And it was very motivating for him because he got to win the class. And then basically it became a standoff between me and Johnny was, well, I'm going to put him into the corner. So that was not a great way to motivate was by by punishing to make you do something yeah so that was just a little tip yeah i think on that note kids are when they're that age they're forever hearing don't do this don't do that from their from their parents and you know what a lot of people who write or they do a lot of training on sort of positive behavior in the classroom they, they say yeah don't use that kind of negative language try and sort of use more sort of positive language offer, offering alternative behavior yeah so do you think that was the right behavior what you know what what could you do maybe as a, a more positive alternative, Johnny, or something like that? Um, instead of saying, don't do that, Johnny, get out, or something like that. It's like, Johnny, if you do that, you know, you know, this is going to be the consequences. Do you want that consequence, Johnny? And uh, I think just sort of flipping that question around uh, can also sort of, yeah, create a bit more sort of positivity out of a, out of a negative if you, if you know where I'm going I mean, it's, it's the old classic you don't tell kids don't run you tell them please walk because you want them to walk if you say don't run they stop running for 20 se- for two seconds and then they turn around and run again I think we're going down the track of a classroom management thing now and and we will have a podcast on classroom management moving on though just two last things that came up in the research which the, in the demographics which actually affected people's opinions was cultural background and qualification Yeah, so two other factors were the cultural factors and qualifications. And I just divided up uh, because we had most responses were either native speakers from UK, USA, Australia, Canada, South Africa, and a few Irish um, and New Zealand. And we also had a lot of because we'd been working a bit in Cambodia and a lot of Chinese people. And so I just sort of pulled out what what all the Chinese people would say was the most motivating. And fascinatingly, it was competition. By far, was the, they thought was the most motive, the best way to motivate your students was competition. So I just think it raises a fascinating issue is that we can have all the opinions, we can have all the theories and on what is motivating and what's not motivating and what to do. But culturally, who are we to say? I mean, I'm from Australia, but... You know, it doesn't. It's not really our place to say what is right or wrong within a certain culture. Um, what do you think of that, John? Like, you know, no, I think it's uh, very different. I think in the in the UK, I think sort of uh, in terms of motivation and competition rewards, I think they've long long ago moved moved away from from that. But I think in still in certain countries, uh, possibly more more in Asia, you know, competition, like you said, is um, still. Um, you know, a, a key part of a key success factor in sort of in education and in life, I think. And uh, yeah, it's not for us to 
to talk down about, I don't think. And, you know, if it's part of the system and uh, it works for them, then uh, then that's fine. Um, you know, if we can sort of back up what we believe in and in terms of sort of rewards and sort of competition uh, and apply that to our, to our classes, then, um, you know, that, that's fine. But, yeah, I think we have to respect, you know, how different sort of cultures sort of uh, yeah, deal with things like sort of competition in relation to motivation and uh, yeah who, who are we to say uh, what's right and what's wrong i would be interested to see any sort of stats statistics you know going back to you know those teachers who do games and competition all the time are their kids outperforming or doing worse in class to those who teachers who are doing more yeah. corrective feedback and doing yeah. things they say by the book a little bit more and the differences in uh, sort of scores and things like that that could be also very interesting to uh, to see Exactly. Which then segues well into the last one, which was the the last filter I put in was qualifications. I had a, I had a, a I know a lady quite she's quite famous. I, I won't mention the name, but she she runs MA Tesla programs for universities in Australia and is PhD etc. in Tesla. And she says she thinks that the MA Tesla's deltas and dip Tesla's are quite imperialist because that they imply a method of teaching which comes from Western culture. I don't know if I agree totally because I used to work for doing that and I think that the idea is to educate yourself on how different learners learn in different places and in what's the best way they respond. So if you learn a sentence, you can't really be imperialist. But on a side note, for the qualifications, what was fascinating was, so we just did a filter with the people who had either MA TESOL, a Delta or a DIP TESOL, which are all, I guess, the highest qualifications for teaching ESL and their top responses were different again of course the top things were again number one personalization but number two was error correction and feedback which is something we haven't mentioned yet and I've noticed um, I know with adults one of the big things they complain about is when they're not getting feedback from the teacher you know I'm, I'm at this language school I've paid a lot of money I want feedback. I want to be corrected. I'm here because I want this, and this is what's motivating me is to know what I'm doing wrong so I can get better. But, of course, kids as well, they want feedback. They want to be told, well done, Johnny, which is personalization, I guess, as well, isn't it? Sort of, you know, well done, Jimmy, you did this, and something specifically, you know, well done, you used this sentence correctly, and you wrote this thing down very well. What else do you have to say about feedback, John? Yeah, I think a lot comes down, it's also related to sort of error, error correction as well. And we have to sort of tread a little bit sort of lightly there uh, in terms of, you know, in some cultures, I think, you know, making mistakes, making errors is still seen, you know, as a, as a, as a negative thing. So I think first step is to make sure that, you know, making errors or the environment in the class is one where making errors is, uh, is a positive thing. It's part of our, uh, of the steps, the stages for, for learning, for learning a language. I think the second thing is, you know, often maybe students are not getting feedback because the teachers maybe don't know how to give feedback uh, effectively. Are they learning that on their training courses? Do they know how to give corrective feedback? Um, I think in many cases, uh, no. So if we can, you know, as sort of schools or a system, as trainers, if we can be sort of passing on sort of effective ways for giving feedback in the class, I think that would go a long way um, to sort of bringing sort of feedback, uh, giving it more prominence in the, in the classroom and in schools, uh, educational institutions as well. 
All right, John, so that was a lot of stuff today about motivation. I'm going to continue on with this research over the next year. We want to build up the numbers and really see bigger data for this. But what was fascinating for me overall was that more experienced teachers tend to focus on the learner-centered personal things. The less experienced teachers focus on the games and the reward systems, that there are cultural implications. People with qualifications tend to have a different opinion again. Maybe they think that's just because they read the theory and they should say that. One thing that I want to talk about later in another podcast is this this link between practice and theory. So I think a lot of us who've gone and gotten qualifications, we know what we should say, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that that's what's actually happening in the classroom. So I think that's another topic we'll talk about later, the theory and practice. But look, it's been really fascinating research. Um, I'm going to keep talking to teachers about this. After people have listened to this, if you have any other ideas about this, send us an email about it. It's on our podcast link about what motivates people. And um, the main thing is, for my, my main point is, Focus on the learner. Make sure that there's meaning for it for them. The more meaning that they have in that class, the more that they have to talk about for themselves, the more they're going to want to learn. For me, games, 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 stickers, stickers, stickers. It's the only way forward. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for this session of uh, ELT uh, Upgraders podcast. We look forward to seeing you uh, next time. Uh, for me, JC, uh, goodbye. And for Mr. Jakey... Goodbye, everybody. See you soon. Bye-bye. Today's podcast was brought to you by Macmillan Education Asia and the ELT Upgraders.